0: Five,
1: four, three, two, one, zero,
0: all engine runner,
1: liftoff, we have a liftoff! Hello space enthusiasts, did you ever wonder why we don't produce solar energy in space? Well, you're in luck, space-based solar power is this week's topic, and I have a great guest. Dr. M. V. Coyote-Smith is a professor of strategic studies at the Air University's School of Graduate Professional Military Education. And he has been looking at space-based solar power for a long time. So let's hear all about how it works and how we make finally make it happen. As always, feel free to email us your questions or comments on the episode at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com or post them on our Twitter, which is podcast underscore space. And if you do enjoy the show, please leave us a review and or a rating on your favorite podcast platform, so more people can find the podcast. Now, here are a couple of short messages from our sponsors. Then please enjoy my conversation with Coyote Smith. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by NanoAvionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator, Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide, Check them out at isunet.edu. Well, hi, everybody. I'm here today joined by Dr. MV Coyote-Smith. Hi, Coyote. How are you doing?
0: Hi. Hi, Raphael. How are you? Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for doing this. And you realize, of course, the first question was always going to be, where does the coyote come from? Is that like an Air Force pilot call sign or, or something?
0: Yes, yeah, that actually is. I spent 30 years on active duty in the Air Force. And in my first year, I spent it in pilot training. And short story made out of a long story. Uh, on my first solo in a jet, I was coming in for a landing and everything was perfect until a coyote in Texas stepped out onto the runway. It freaked me out, it freaked the coyote out, it freaked out the people in the air traffic control tower. And I had to do a go around and it, it was an ugly go around, but. Short story, I kept my thumb on the transmit button and I was providing live commentary using no uncertain language as oh, I was moving around the traffic pattern to recover. Uh, when the student realized he'd made the comments live, uh, he was embarrassed. Uh, so I landed, and they threw me in the solo tank, and they baptized me coyote right there. When I say they threw me in the solo tank, one of the traditions in the American military is whenever you do anything good, they take you and they throw you in a big tub of water just to keep you humble. That,
1: that sounds like a good tradition. I, as somebody <laughs> who enjoys taking cold showers every day, I actually sympathize with that. Okay, so so there's there's a coyote origin, it it stuck. Poor poor Coyote, probably chasing a roadrunner, and you kind of messed up the the chase. Yeah,
0: it it was that part of the country. Yeah, they do that.
1: Okay, so how did you go from that part of your Air Force career to space-based solar power, which is the topic we shall be discussing today?
0: Wow, you know, that's a very great story. You know, all of us, most of us anyway, we start our careers thinking we're going to, in my case, be a fighter pilot. And uh, that was going along well. But I I came down with a a sickness called
1: labyrinthitis. Oh, I I have it as well. Yes. Uh, ears ringing and sort of problems with balance and dizziness. Very annoying.
0: And they decided that, you know, you shouldn't be dizzy and flying airplanes at the same time. And I absolutely support that policy. So I wanted to stay in the Air Force, and the Cold War was on, and they needed brave, young, handsome men such as myself standing the line against the curse of the Soviet Union. Oh, this was back in 1986, 87.
1: Oh, you were right there in like Top Gun period. So this is. uh, Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, right there. And so uh, I, I volunteered to go off to become a missile launch officer and work with the intercontinental ballistic missiles mm-hmm. out in South Dakota. I enjoyed that duty. But fortunately, the Cold War came to a peaceful end. And when it came to a conclusion, they wondered what to do with all of the missile operators such as myself. And they decided that they'd merge us with the space community. And so that's how I made my transition into the space community inside the Air Force. I really enjoyed it quite a lot. I grew up more in like the future concepts, the technical development fields. And eventually, as I would go on with I I would command a squadron, and then I would go back to the Pentagon as a lieutenant colonel back in the year 2005 through 2007. So for those three years, I was at the Pentagon serving as the chief of the future concept shop for the national security space office. It was a fantastic job. I dealt with space and advanced technologies Mm -hmm. and brilliant ideas. My job was so cool. I got to spend my time going out and farming new ideas from every different community around America and our allies. We would do things such as uh, attend conferences and, and, and meetings where everybody would present their government-funded job. Mm-hmm. But that really wasn't what we were interested in. What we would do is we would take the person that gave a relatively interesting presentation and we'd go out for drinks afterwards and we'd say, where do you think this technology is really going? What excites you? And suddenly these people, that these engineering-minded type of people who were kind of bland when they gave their presentation, suddenly they would light up and start speaking with their hands and you knew that you had hit the, the, the mother load of information. And they would just give you the most incredible ideas on, on how to advance space faring for humanity. And one of the things that we did with uh, that project, we would do what Jules Verne did back in the 1800s. Jules Verne would do the same thing. He'd go attend all the conferences and symposia but he'd go out with the scientists afterwards and he'd really find out what interested them and then he would introduce several of those people in the community to to make those ideas, well as as a Canadian futurist named Matt Ridley, who I really respect, he says to make those ideas have sex with each other so that they would propagate and and, and the ideas would get bigger
1: You get evolution of the ideas Yes,
0: Right, right. You know, it's an amazing thing. You take a look at what this internet does. You put an idea on the internet and you leave it there overnight and then you come back and you look at what has happened the next morning. Thousands of people have opined on it and and things have completed and the idea evolved in directions we never knew would possible. And so that's kind of what we were trying to do back in those early 2000s when the idea of space-based solar power was presented to me by one of my dear friends, a a fellow Air Force officer named Peter Gerritsen. He called me on the (laughs) telephone and he said, have you ever heard of space-based solar power? Uh, No. And he pitched the idea to me and I thought to myself initially, uh, that's foolish. I thought it was a stupid idea. Why did you think that? Well, I thought it was stupid because I figured there were so many other better earthly alternatives.
1: Right, you thought like we have really good, I don't know, nuclear power, hydropower. You're like, why do we have to like build a giant space space like satellite or something? Yeah, I mean, why yeah. do we need to go right. to that expense?
0: We, we were talking about methods of of creating clean coal combustion and, yeah. and cleaner oil combustion, et cetera. And uh, those were other projects that I was looking at for the Department of Defense at that time was clean coal, clean oil, clean, less threatening nuclear, some of these little reactor containers that can be put into communities yeah. that uh, simply power sell uh, the little community. It, it, it's amazing what can be done with energy. But when you said space-based solar power, I'm sitting there thinking to myself the limitations that we have on spacefaring. you know the International Space Station is a massively expensive endeavor. Mm-hmm. It truly is. Sure. Building it was unbelievably expensive. We, we Literally, we had to have the given the technology that we had to build the space shuttle. Yeah. And the space shuttle was costing us over a billion dollars a launch. Yes, and
1: the, I remember. Yes. Oh my that goodness. cost overruns, fewer launches than people expected at the beginning of the 70s when it was approved. Yeah. <laughs> Heat so, shield. <laughs> yeah. And just so and, controls. <laughs>
0: So I was the guy that also had to manage, at that time, I had to arrange the meetings of the Defense Science Board, which was between NASA, the National Reconnaissance Office, and the Air Force, in putting together our... our national strategy for how we were going to lay out our investments and how we were going to occupy our limited laboratory time Mm -hmm. across the various enterprise so that we could uh, maximize returns on our investment and prevent duplication while advancing the overall art of spacefaring. And included in that, we always sat there with our representatives from the European Space Agency and some of their subsets, for example, the Canadian space, the the Brits would be present. We would certainly have somebody from Kness present, uh, and, and we would make sure that we had had a broad open discussion about how we wanted to lay out this science between our, our great alliance, and it was the Defense Science Board was really kind of one of those things that I really enjoyed being involved with. But coming back more specifically on space-based solar power, it just seemed like an impossible piece of infrastructure. A gentleman named uh, Lieutenant Colonel Mike Hornacek had just graduated from Air War College, and he had written a paper titled "War." without oil. And what was most interesting about his paper, War Without Oil, was not necessarily the war part, but the idea that the competition between great powers could erupt over oil because our economies are so dependent on petroleum and the desire to reduce our propellant towards warfare by reducing our dependency upon petroleum products. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in that paper, he listed so many alternative forms of energy. And one of the sources that he talked about was space-based solar power. And this is where Peter Gerritsen got the idea and why he called me. So we met with Mike Hornacek. And Mike Hornacek said there was somebody in D.C. that we needed to meet with. And his name was John Mankins John Mankins is an engineer extraordinaire he came from the uh, NASA's future concept shop where he and masterminds such as Ivan Becky uh, and oh just a whole cast of other folks would sit around and think big thoughts about how to solve tremendous problems on large scales or on infinitesimal scales. They were just, what an incredible brain trust. So John Mankins had retired from that shop. He had done a study, what they called a fresh look, on space-based solar power, refreshing in a look that they had done back in the 1970s into the concept. And he had finished it in the late 1990s. And what he determined was that the technical challenges remain, but the science is demonstrating that space-based solar power, the idea of putting super huge solar collectors in space concentrating that energy and broadcasting it safely via radio waves down to the surface of the earth was not only possible but desirable in the sense that it creates an additional source of safe, clean electrical energy that can be fed either into our existing power grids Mm -hmm. or in the back part of the 21st century, we could simply have wide area power broadcast just as Nikola Tesla had Mm -hmm. described back in the late 1800s in his experiments in Colorado. It's an amazing thing. There There was a big... Our our thoughts on space-based solar power are very heavily complected by what happened in the United States in the late 1800s. Thomas Alva Edison and Nikola Tesla were competing for the idea of how to distribute energy, electrical energy. Edison wanted AC, DC, alternating current. Yeah. alternating current, and he wanted to provide it via electric wires. And Nikola Tesla wanted direct current and he wanted to broadcast it through the air with his broadcasters. That's an interesting idea. Now that's not the same concept as space-based solar power. The idea with space-based solar power is that we would transmit the energy safely down to Earth and then we would broadcast it in a wide area. Or we could, if, if the technology proved itself over time, to be safe and clean. Those are the two criteria that we have. All of us that have been involved in space-based solar power have said consistently that if it proves to be unsafe or unclean, we'd be the first to be the naysayers of the source of energy. But what we really are talking about right now is having collectors here on the Earth that will collect that radio signal and reassemble it and convert it back into electricity. A lot of people talk about the path loss, and yes, there's considerable path loss, but you're getting the source of energy for free. It's simply a matter of putting up and controlling a large enough gossamer structure on orbit to collect the energy. As I like to say when I discuss space-based solar power, Douglas Adams, the author of uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, yeah, he was right. The answer is 42, okay. and he did not know what the question was. The question is, how many square meters of solar panel on the earth are comparable to one square meter of solar panel on orbit and right, here's 42 <laughs> okay 42 <laughs> one square meter of solar panel on orbit broadcasting that energy down to earth is comparable to 42 square meters of solar panel on earth because in space you don't have to worry about day and night the seasons the weather the storms um endless other number of things dust storms animals Getting in the solar, we have solar solar uh, fields out west here in the United States, where they are constantly being bothered by things like badgers that dig up a wire and bite through it. So, space-based solar power gives us uh, an avenue around that.
1: Can we just quickly run through for those of our listeners who are not aware, sort of the the basic architecture of this? So, you said it's (laughs) basically a very big structure somewhere in space. So I guess the sort of the first elementary question was like, where in space? Is it like, like if it's in Leo, I assume it's going to be too difficult because you're zipping very fast. So I assume it's higher. Is is it geo or where would you put those?
0: Yes, what we envision is placing, ringing a series of these space-based solar power satellites at the geostationary belt at 22,300 nautical miles above Mm -hmm. the equator. And from those positions, these structures would unfurl themselves. They will be several kilometers On a side. Let's say you'll have six kilometers by six kilometers. Of super thin film solar array, collecting that energy, concentrating it, and broadcasting it via radio wave down to Earth. People have even thought about the fact, you know, if we put some of these solar power stations out there, they've got the energy. Why don't we simply connect to those, to the undersides of those satellites, our communication satellites, and our weather satellites, and our other satellites mm. that we park out of yeah. geostationary? Platforms, yeah. right. So it simply becomes a platform for general purpose use, but the, but the principle platform itself will be for energy collection and broadcast to Earth. I still get very excited about this idea, and uh, I- I'm I'm so gratified that college students, universities all around the world have contacted Peter and myself, and Dr. Mankins, and a number of other people that have been involved in the study simply to continue the investigation. We know that it's scientifically possible. We know that it remains technically challenging, and there are an awful lot of very young engineers that would love to make the name for themselves. Mm-hmm. By solving those technical problems, that makes space-based solar power fiscally, economically, not only viable, but
1: irresistible. Desirable. Yes. We'll, we'll come back to that question. I, I promise you that the money question is very interesting. So wh- when you were having those discussions with, with Mankins, what year are we in now? Oh, th-
0: those That was 2000, 2005, 2006. Okay. So we're still, the, we... uh, we're
1: still in that period where you mentioned when we, we, our prime Primary vehicle into space is still the space shuttle with you know those very right. high costs you were mentioning. I guess that in itself was sort of a barrier, probably, right? Because you have to take a lot of tonnage up there. Like you said, these structures are very big. So that would have cost a lot of money with the space transport capacity back in the day, right?
0: Boy, that's so correct. Yeah. I mean, it would just be that that was the big factor of cost prohibition was the lift to get it to orbit. Producing massive number massive amounts of super thin film solar array, very inexpensive. I mean, the more you produce, the cheaper per unit cost it becomes. Comes. And we took a look at the various kinds of solar, thin film solar array that's out there. Fortunately, we're getting very good standard performance between 15 and 25% over time from that thin film. We have heard reports that we've investigated and they fell through that some people say, you know, you get, well, 75% performance out of this thin film. And what we discover is it quickly erodes to that more standard state of between 15 and 25% performance. But those numbers are going up. I say the 15% a little bit reluctantly. I say that the numbers are better, but I don't want to mislead people. I, I want to give you what I suspect the performance case would be of this system after a year or two on
1: orbit. Yeah. Is, that, is there an issue with um, what What would be the lifetime of such PV, like photovoltaic units? on uh, Because you're very high up. Is there any issue with, with radiation, sort of the destroying the solar cells, something like that?
0: Well, you know, that radiation is part of what creates that energy, huh. of course, you know. Yes, and over time, the thin film will erode. Uh, the other good news about this is space debris will simply penetrate it without, you know, create it rip stops. It does not continue to uh, unfold the whole vessel if it were to come in contact with space debris. The satellites themselves sitting out there uh, will go into a period of about an hour every year where where they will hit a nadir spot with regard to the sun. But our concept is that we would have overlapping coverage of these power satellites. And each of these satellites with a multipurpose waveform generator can spot beam their broadcast of the radio signal carrying the energy Uh, to wherever it needs to go. A lot of people have talked about the safety of this. How Mm. do we know that this is not a weapon? Well, first of all, we're much more interested in safe, clean energy than we are in a death ray from space, okay? (laughs) Uh, You know, uh, we said in our study, you know, we did, uh, when we finally were convinced to do the space-based solar power study, my general, General Jim Armour, he directed me, gave me a f- gave me five months and no budget to do space-based solar power. And that was exactly the right money point. He wanted my plan overnight on how I was going to do this study. And I went back to him the next day and I said, General, you know, we don't have a budget and I can't find the type of scientists and engineers that work for free. But I do have friends. I do have the Internet. And if you let me do this on the, uh, on the Internet with emails going back and forth, I can make a couple of what at the time Google provided a little platform called Google Groups. And so I made a Google group and I started inviting a couple of friends and they started inviting a couple of friends. And holy cow, the project just ballooned. The interest in space-based solar power is Goliath. It is massive. Uh, I had, by the end of the first month, 170 of the best scientists, physicists, engineers, lawyers, policy people, people from the safety community, contributing hours upon hours of their time online after work on this virtual platform. I had to break My original website, because it was taking up too much of my time, I couldn't manage it. I had to split it into and make my site the plenary site where everybody would come and get their announcements. And then they'd break off into four little sites that I created on the side. But at the same time, at the insistence of my general, I I made a a WordPress website that was absolutely Mm -hmm. open to everybody in the world, and we posted everything that we were doing on that site in order to generate more ideas and to find more people that had other great ideas that we could bring into the, the inner discussion that we were having in the plenary session and in the breakout Google groups. That's and fascinating.
1: You effectively open sourced a U.S. Air Force project. That's probably not what people would generally expect. <laughs> no, 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 you
0: wouldn't expect that. And here's what my general said. My general said, no, okay. first of all, when I said we'll do the internet, he goes, no, Coyote, we don't do our, our stuff studies on the open, out in the open like this. And then he sat there and he thought about it. I went back to my desk, you know, believing that I was shot down and I had to come up with a new idea. He came back to me and he said, you know, Coyote, this is just too important to America, our allies, and the world. This is something we need to do. I don't have a budget for you, like I said. If you need to do it online, go ahead and do it that way. And if anybody tries to get you in trouble, tell them I told you to do it that way. Mm. Can you imagine that? When your boss comes to you and gives you the top cover to do something that had never been done before? Mm, Card blanche. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I'd like to talk about some of the people that contributed their time to to mm-hmm. our study. I had Dallas Beanhoff from Boeing. Mm-hmm. He was one of their heads of their 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 lunar space flight, their manned space flight office. I had folks from the National Science Foundation. I had Eva Jane Lark from Canada, who uh, is one of the best business minded indexers of the new space industry that's out there. I got a telephone call, and I was asked what my middle initial was. It's V, yeah. and, and uh, Michael V Smith. And I was asked if it actually stood for Valentine. And I'm like, who is this? And it was Art Dula. Art Dula is the president of the Heinlein Prize Trust. And he goes, well, Uh, you know, Martian in a Strange Land starts by saying, once there was a Martian and his name was Valentine Michael Smith. And I was just wondering. And um, he became a major contributor to our effort. Now, Robert Heinlein had said that there were three criteria to become a truly spacefaring civilization. Number 1, you needed to harvest the energy from space. Number 2, you needed to harvest the resources of space such as the mineral wealth, etc. Mm-hmm. And you also need to uh settle off earth. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, if I misquoted that, I apologize to Duel Doolin and the Heinlein Prize Trust. That error is on me. And by the way, I'd also like to make a disclaimer statement here at this point, which I failed to give up front. All of the ideas that I express are my own. They are not necessarily those of the United States government, the Department of the Air Force, Air University, my family, whatever. But I do assert that they ought to be the, those opinions. But but I'm I, I, sitting there again, and I got a telephone call from one individual whose name I won't use for, to protect his privacy. He's an attorney whose cases are heard in front of the U.S. Supreme Court he tells me, I know every member of Congress by first name. I-, I know them all. I'm willing to contribute my time to you to-, to help make space-based solar power possible. So we were making a very major push. And, uh, wow. Over the course of the next five months, we collected all of this information and we published out a report. We called ourselves the Space-Based Solar Power Study Group. And we presented it. Buzz Aldrin came and joined us. Mm-hmm. Second man to walk on the moon. And presented it at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. We had good media coverage. We actually embedded report with us in our study, Jeremy Singer, who was at the time working for Space News. He was an instrumental person. We invited him into every chat and discussion. We did not have a meeting where he was not welcome. And we we encouraged him to publish anything that he wanted. He would do something typically once a week, maybe once every other week because of the interest of the paper. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, he would generously allow us to to look to make sure that he got the technical things right, but at no time did we ever interfere with his ability to publish his story. We simply wanted to make the access absolutely transparent. Now, no matter how transparent you try to make stuff, there are people out there that always go, well, this must be some covert covert secret plan mm-hmm. to uh, track who knows about this stuff or or to, to make some type of, type of weapon. And the answer to that is, no, it wasn't. But the problem is you can't convince people otherwise. You'll notice that the Air Force did not pursue this.
1: Well, I was going to go there. So we are, um, from what you said before, I guessing we're still sort of in the mid or late 2000s, right? Yeah. And, and, and it seemed like there was a lot of excitement and all of these people involved and uh, on, on the internet. And w- what, what happened? <laughs>
0: Well, you know, it was really disappointing what happened. We did, we, we published out our study. We had our uh, space leaders, you know, General Armour, uh, Mr. Joe Rouge, a number of other people from various space entities. The Army space community was there. The Navy space community was there. They were all fascinated and they wanted to press forward with the type of systematic investments and the type of technology that would buy down the risk for commercial partners to get involved. All the way through this, we were talking about how the Department of Defense did not want to get into the energy business. That's not our game. We did want to be an early adopter, a customer, that, customer. Would, yeah. that would that would be willing to issue pre-purchase agreements or to establish pre-purchase prices. But we knew that we could not compete with the, um, the energy sector, nor did we want to. That's not what we do. We yeah. simply wanted to be a customer. Uh, we felt that a couple other things were in our mind. When we define security, we define it much more broadly than going to war and fighting wars. We talk about energy security. Mm -hmm. in the form of having safe, clean energy in abundance. Uh, We talk about energy security in the sense of there's places in the world that are rather unsavory where a lot of our companies have to go to acquire petroleum and other energy. We talk about uh, industrial security. We went to the Greater Houston Partnership, which represents the vast majority of petroleum interests in the United States and around the world. And we invited them to join us in space-based solar power and to consider that petroleum is likely to become the tobacco of the 21st first century and we we encourage them to think about making investments in a public private partnership to create space based solar power they did they demurred they didn't they were not excited by the idea mostly because they're not scientists and engineers the people that we were talking to were bankers and investors that represent petroleum they're not the people that have the vision it's really unfortunate because the the information we had was that in 2016 the profits that were earned by petroleum as a sector was 1.422 trillion dollars. Just 10% of that each year. And we would be up and running with space-based solar power satellites right now. And those petroleum companies would have an alternative to petroleum that they could convert their company to. They could keep their their lobbyists in place in our national capitals. They could keep their executive boards intact. They could uh, transform their labor force from one of petroleum to one of space production. And I know that that's easier said than done. It's very easy for me to sit here and say that. But that those are the types of opportunities that we were trying to open up and create the imaginative mind in, in the ideas of folks that have. Now, there were a lot of investors who from Wall Street who came and met with us at different times. They were very interested in the public-private partnership, but they weren't willing to invest until the government was willing to step forward and demonstrate some form of commitment to it. Generating that type of commitment from government is very, very difficult.
1: Was that sort of um, having the proof of confidence? done by the government or was it beyond that? concept presumably wouldn't even have to be that expensive, especially today, right? That
0: is correct. Uh, In 2009, I would lead a project out at the Air Force Academy. It was called the One Light Bulb Experiment. What we wanted to do was run space-based solar power in reverse. We wanted to put a satellite on orbit that would receive the energy broadcast and simply indicate its success of receiving by illuminating a single light bulb that could be observed from Earth. That 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 was one of our concepts. Demonstrate the concept in reverse. The other thing that we wanted to do was put up a a, oh and by the way we costed that out that would have cost us about nine million dollars
1: wow so that's very cheap back in the day right from space
0: the more interesting proposal that we did and it was still one light bulb project, but what we wanted to do was light the Christmas ornament on top of the Christmas tree at the White House, Mm. on the lawn of the White House. We would love to have a broadcast that when they turn the lights on, that they make an announcement that the energy that's lighting the tip of the tree is being broadcast from space. You know, we were going to put... A satellite in low Earth orbit with large solar collectors that would use a radio broadcast down to what we call a rectenna, a receiving antenna, out on the ellipse in Washington, D.C., that could take that energy, store it in batteries so that they could light the Christmas tree at night. As that satellite went over repeatedly, it was simply broadcast during its pass. Uh, that project was a little more expensive. We figured that was between 11 and $12 million.
1: Still a lot, a lot of money in the large scheme of things. Yeah. <laughs> No. Uh, and
0: now, you know, space-based solar power warrants another study on the scale that we did that one. It really does. Launch costs have entirely changed. We see vehicles coming out of SpaceX that are not only uh, reusable stages, but you also see that there's Starlifter. Holy shit.
1: Yeah, oh, Starship works star 100 tons to, I mean, actually, I don't know what the cost to GOS, but to lower off-orbit, we're talking like a few hundred dollars, right? Yeah. It works. I mean, that,
0: that is a total game changer. And I, I suspect that makes the business case. That closes the business case for space-based solar power. A lot of it has to do with, with how, how much you spend per kilowatt as a customer.
1: Right. But that's going to depend on the customer as well, right? Because, I mean, if we start, I'm assuming that what hasn't changed is probably that a lot of commercial actors would, again, look to the government to being sort of like a lighthouse initial customer. But if you're somewhere in the battlefield and power is critical, right? I mean, how much are you willing to pay per kilowatt hour? It's,
0: it's, it's that's a great, great question. And, you know, uh, one of the things that we faced, the United States faced in our imbroglio in in Iraq in 2016, which is the year which I have most 20 me, 2006, 2006 is the year that I have the numbers for the quoted number for the the oil revenues was from 2006, 2006. The United States was spending between three and six hundred dollars per gallon of petroleum delivered to power plants inside Iraq.
1: Two magnitudes premium, basically, thereabouts. Yeah.
0: Oh, it, it, but here was the expense. We were trying to pump Iraqi petroleum, we were trying to pump it so that. Uh, those people could keep their industry alive. We had to secure their po- petroleum production while they're in a combat zone and people are shooting at it. Then we would convoy that petroleum someplace where it could be refined. Sometimes we had to take it offshore for refinement. Right. And then we'd bring it back ashore and convoy it again. And those convoys generated 70% of our casualties that we were facing over there. Right. So when you're spending between three and $600 a gallon and 70% of your casualties are coming from convoying petroleum in a battle area,
1: space-based solar power starts sounding like a really good alternative. Right. I mean, if you sort of just take the same, uh, like, you know, two orders of magnitude, it means you suddenly pay like, I don't know, 20, 30 bucks or so per per kilowatt hour. And so that's, that's a significantly different number in your economic calculation. Right. Is there anything, yeah. So you mentioned the launch cost is sort of the very obvious one. Is there something else that changed in the last uh, 10, 15 years that has sort of impact? I also like imagining this like giant structures we have up there, like, you know, one of the companies I've been following is, is something like Made in Space, which is 3D printing. Yeah trusses in space, right, which is yeah. something we can do now.
0: You're very insightful, and you're right. Those are the types of things that we we're talking about. The uh, continued improvement in thin-film solar array is something that gives us tremendous hope. That is becoming altogether common. The other thing about that is mass-producing thin-film solar array is so easy that you don't need to have a highly technical society to, to, to do it. Once you have the uh, fabrication stuff lined up and supplied, you can have a, a relatively low-tech workforce cranking out this thin-film solar Uh, We're continually working on that aspect of it. The gossamer structures, the super large structures that this will require, kilometers on a side, we are looking at robotic assembly. Now, is it going to be mm. remotely piloted robotic assembly, or is it going to be semi-autonomous, or is it going to be fully autonomous assembly? Mm. In some cases, we can we can um, take advantage of the type of t- science and technology we have to create at least semi-autonomous platforms that self-erect, open themselves up. We also need to consider two other concepts. One is how we would replace the solar array over time as it erodes yep, erodes mm-hmm. And the other thing is, when we are done with that overall structure, what do we do with it? Now, I am of the mind that in the long term, what we really need to do, and this is a step that's beyond right now. Eventually, eventually, we will have human settlement on the moon, and we will have fabrication and manufacturing facilities on the moon. Mm -hmm. And that is the ideal place to make space-based solar power systems. First of all, the regolith is littered with uh, substances that can be used in photovoltaic conversion. The lunar surface does not have a contamination problem. It's sitting there absorbing the raw blast of of, uh, fusion reaction from the sun continuously. But we do need to to be very careful of that lunar environment because we want to be proper stewards wherever we go. We don't want to simply trash space-based solar power satellites. It would be more magnificent if we could boost those into a slow, impact onto the moon, where those resources could be recaptured Mm. and maybe remilled into usable stresses and structures for use on the moon or sent back into the Earth orbit. We also envision that these space-based solar power satellites will be useful around the lunar surface as well, at the lunar stationary points, where they can broadcast energy down. Um, We think also that these satellites may be a useful accompaniment when we send uh, people to Mars, Mm. because you'll need a Gossamer structure collecting energy, because having an abundance of energy will only help whatever you're able to do inside your inhabited spaceship. And also, we'll probably need to ring Mars with space-based solar power satellites. Mars is at a greater depth. They've got a much weaker solar energy to collect out there. They'll need these gossamer structures
1: but one thing i forgot to ask on the on the on the technology side so usually the satellites and this is basically nothing else but a very very big satellite right there's the, right. the task of station keeping making sure it's like remains where it's supposed to remain i'm going to assume that's sort of relevant here as well because you're beaming back to a specific spot
0: yeah it is station keeping how, is going to be critical not only station keeping but yeah. pointing towards the
1: sun keeping the yeah. aim towards the sun yeah how is that happening? Is there sort of propul- like dedicated propulsion units along the structure or how I'm going that- to leave that
0: that uh to John Mankins and other scientists and engineers that are working that problem. You know, John Mankins has been such a, a treasure in this quest for space-based solar power. He has basically dedicated his life to this. Mm-hmm. Uh he became a true believer uh Back when he did that fresh start study um, for NASA back in the late '90s, and our study that he contributed in, it, it, he has just he's just blossomed. He has done so many uh, assessments of various designs that are out there. Uh, some are very credible, some are very not credible, not credible at all. And he's able to fish through those types of things because he sits down and he does the raw numbers. He does his numbers on paper and with slide rule, and uh, he, he isn't a slave to the to the uh, digital question. One of the problems that we have had across our engineering sector in my humble opinion is the use of calculators. You ask a discrete question and you get a discrete answer. One of the things that the use of slide rules does is it forces you to master the variables. And as you set up your slide rules, you'll realize how manipulating one little variable mm. can change the complete output of your calculations. I'll give you an example, center of gravity analysis it, 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 there are rockets that have been designed out there that uh, we know now are inherently unstable the reason why is they couldn't they couldn't manage The shifting of their center of gravity as fuels at different weights and speeds of consumption were were blasted through the rocket, Mm -hmm. through the engine. And if you did your science on a calculator, you could snap any moment in time and ask a discrete question, and you would get an answer that indicated that the rocket was stable. But you wouldn't have much insight into how narrow that window of stability was. If you use a slide rule, you might see that at that moment it's stable. But if anything goes wrong, one or two pounds of difference mm. on either side of that equation, your rocket becomes unstable and it's going to tumble and, and, and explode. We've seen way too much of that. So uh, I, I do strongly encourage people to develop their math skills and to continually practice their minds with the with the the the, the, the with slide rules, quite literally, because it exposes you to the variables that. We don't take into account as being variable. The word variable means it's variable. <laughs> yeah, yeah you,
1: literally, that's going to be one of my takeaways from this call. I'm literally going to experiment with slide rules, which I admit I have never done. I've just used calculators or laptops, basically. <laughs> well,
0: it, it's wonderful. And in fact, you can get a lot of really hyper-accurate slide rules for your uh, mobile apps, you know, from your phones and stuff like that.
1: Okay, so now we're, okay, we, you talked about 2006 and we're sort of, yeah, we're in the late 2000s. Okay, let's fast forward, which to some extent we've already done, right? Because we mentioned uh, Starship and the 3D mm-hmm. printing. Potentially in, in space and things like that. In, in general, sort of like, do you see the Renaissance of space-based uh, sort of uh, sorry space-based solar power now?
0: I do think that the time is soon upon us that we will be looking for a public-private partnership. Right now, our United States Navy has an experiment aboard our X. Ex- 37 feet. I was
1: going to ask you about that because I thought I read that, that it was a space-based solar power experiment on that very, very secretive yeah. plane. And,
0: and, and, and I'm very happy that, it, that it's producing very positive results. And I think we are moving to a place where here in, you know, I believed in all of my heart 15 years ago that we were going to get this off the ground then. Mm. But here's the problem. Everybody, money is tight everywhere you go. Nobody has money that is just sitting there waiting to be spent on some new idea that somebody rushes in, uh, at least not in government. We don't have that type of investment capital. We do all of our budgeting in a zero-based manner, and you know, so we, we when somebody has a great idea, well, great. We have to finish all these other great ideas over here before we can do this new idea. Hmm. So it takes while for a new idea to work its way into a government research center. Uh, John Mankins is no longer with the government, and he has continued his research, and he's one of these. Gentleman, that he really does an awful lot of footwork. He, he contacts companies that may be in, in the fabrication sector that he is interested in. He finds out what bits and pieces. Cost. I mean, he's 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 at a point where he's he's thinking about the economics of this in a very very tight manner. Mm. So my respect goes out to him. We we referred to him as the evil Dr. Why
1: is that? Where's the where's, poor guy? Where's the Doctor Evil part coming from? Well, you know, Doctor uh, Evil and Austin Powers using basically he's threatening the Earth with like giant. Uh, like beams, death well, from space.
0: Well, it was, it was just a nickname that we gave him working with him. Uh, part of it, he has these very bushy eyebrows and it's kind of like, kind of a trademark for John Mankins. Uh, and it, it, we, we would miss them if they were gone. Plus, he has such scientific knowledge that you realize we're really glad that this guy is on the good side. No, it's not. Okay. Because if he became part of the, the, uh, the real bad Dr. side, it would, be, it would be very bad. So we call him Dr. Evil, ironically. It, we, we even shortened the evil Dr. Mankins into an acronym called TEDM, T-E-D-M, TEDM. Yeah, every time, every, anytime you get to meet a, a, a gentleman, a, 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 somebody with the engineering prowess that he has and with the vision, you know need to spend time and talk with him because
1: he's just wonderful. Okay, so you've already indirectly touched upon sort of the, the, the funding question, but so now that it seems that various of the components we need, we've made a lot of technological progress. The cost numbers look much more favorable than the, they looked, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Still, this is a very expensive endeavor, and mm-hmm. I'm not talking about of the demo mission, but really putting a whatever the right size is, gigawatt type, you know, uh, facility up there. It's going to be a very big investment. Do you have a hunch of how this should be financed? Should it be entire, for example, should it, I give you some options? Should it be entirely government-led by, and you talked about these entities before, DOD, which part of the DOD? DARPA, DOE. Should it be like SpaceX style, like, you know, a very um, motivated billionaire who wants to leave a legacy, but, you know, Assisted by government money and contracts, could it be, um, what's another option Um, from the U.S., uh, something like a a Tennessee Valley Authority, right, a giant national project, public-private partnership?
0: Yeah, you know, you've listed some very good ideas. And and the one that I keep coming back on is uh, I think there is needs to become a relationship between the Department of Energy and, the, and, and NASA yeah. and all of NASA's broader international partnerships. Uh, because I think initial investment by the government expressly for the purpose of buying down the risk to the commercial sector that will come next is absolutely essential. Uh, I love the idea of a public-private partnership in doing that. I think we need to set industry up to perform in such a manner that... As we go through building the first concept demonstrators and we make this work for the first time, that we all collectively learn this. This is too important. And I'm going back to what General Armour said to me to the United to, to America, our allies, and the world. We've got to make sure that something like space-based solar power comes along because it not only advances our spacefaring, but also, and here's the key thing: it becomes a revenue generator. And it becomes a source of safe, clean energy that can help us get out of the uh, climate change troubles that we're in now. Now, I'm not saying that it's going to be your sole source of energy. It will not. Mm -hmm. It will be part of that healthy diet of energy that we will engage in. And when I say healthy, we find electricity to be uh, probably the safest form of energy that we have. This is a method of providing that that safe energy. Now, public-private partnership uh, we we oftentimes look back at the model of the way uh, Intelsat was established in the United States and a couple of other satellite s- systems as well. The government did the initial setup and basically handed over everything to a commercial entity and the government itself became a customer. Mm-hmm. And that's very good. Think about this. When you establish a public-private partnership, say you're a government, and you establish a public-private partnership, you're creating a taxpayer. Mm-hmm. You're creating an entity of people that feed themselves. Mm -hmm. They're they're employed, they have jobs, they take care of themselves. Uh, When you have a commodity like energy, you've got something that can be sold and that generates more revenue and that generates more revenue for the government as well. An example of this is the global positioning system. Mm -hmm. We spend on the average about $2 billion a year on GPS in the United States. And that's a crude number. That's a very crude number. I don't know what the exact number is. Mm Now, I did hear that last year, 2020, that the estimated valuation of GPS to the U.S. economy alone was over $340 billion. Mm. If that's just taxed at a a 10% rate. Yeah, nice return. GPS,
1: it it pays for itself and generates a revenue. Yes, yes. You actually, that um, a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned, um, yeah, it's not going to be the only... Alternative energy source. And then I just realized, um, I immediately started thinking about fusion power, right? Yeah. And it's actually, and I'm sure you notice, right? There's actually been now significant investment also from private investors in fusion power startups. And I'm going to just go out there and assume... Much, much, much more investment than anybody has invested to date in space-based solar power. Yeah. What, what have the fusion guys done right that the space-based solar guys haven't done right? You, you because, I mean, I technologically, it strikes me as actually not that far apart. It's probably similar time frames, to be honest, between the first commercially viable fusion plant and, and the space-based solar array.
0: Yeah, uh, You know, the other thing that for people that are so concerned about fission and fusion, why don't we put those things on orbit and use use the broadcast method of space-based solar power to, to bring it down to Earth? Uh, that gets us out of the, the, the nuclear waste and hazard area. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's really interesting because uh, when it comes to, the, to fusion, you know, every every day of my life that I've been alive, I've been told two things. One, I've been told that fusion is the energy source of the future and it's right around the corner. Mm -hmm. And I've also been told that we're no further ahead than we were when we started. Right. (laughs) And, and, uh, like space-based solar power, fusion is going to have to dispel the disbelief.
1: Yeah. There's a mean saying they do about a certain country on Earth. I'm not gonna say which one, but it's like uh I'm gonna use I'm gonna use the same saying for fusion. I guess you could say fusion is the energy source of the future, it always has been. <laughs> but I think that's a, I think that's a bit mean because I know people who are working on these projects and they are actually very engaged in making yeah. legitimate products. You know th-
0: and I will say that that the fusion community has spun off an awful lot of Brilliant technologies have been very useful in so many different other applications. So, you know, money, when, when you put money into science, into research, it, it, what you're researching might not be productive. But boy, the, the spinoffs from, from virtually every investment I've seen has just been Goliath. Uh, you think about the expense the United States put into Apollo, and a lot, we really lost we lost an opportunity. You know, when you and I buy a computer, we might open it up, and there's going to be a sticker on the side of it that says Intel inside. You know, if it's got an Intel processor chip. Intel's been very deliberate about marking up the products that they've touched. If NASA and the other space agencies around the world had taken the spin-off technologies and they'd put a sticker that said NASA inside mm-hmm. on things like your microwave oven, like on your your computer, your your notebook computer, your your your. Yeah laptop or all these other your your mobile phone it's really amazing what happens. The other thing I want people to keep in mind is that space faring is easier today than it ever was. In mm-hmm. my hand, I am holding a telephone. It's a mobile phone. It's like most of your mobile phones that you have. There, it's a smartphone. On that smartphone is an awful lot of space flight tested hardware that is TRL level nine. That means technical mm-hmm. readiness level nine means it's been proven in the mm-hmm. environment. Mm-hmm. And um, there are little satellites that go up now where basically they take a mobile phone and they break it apart and they mount it on a motherboard and they give it a different power supply and they put an antenna and receiver on it. And that mobile phone is the brain of that satellite and they perform brilliantly on orbit. And in fact, you still have that very adaptable type of platform in the mobile phone that you can um, activate applications on that mobile phone to have it, it take care of the satellite in different ways or to perform different kinds of missions while that satellite is on orbit. It's it's just brilliant.
1: Yeah, I love the idea of the NASA inside sticker. Somebody should actually really um, give that idea to NASA. They should should start doing that in some way. That's brilliant.
0: I'm I'm so disappointed. A few years ago, NASA was asking, how do we make space cool? And I said, you know, the way you make space cool is you advertise. Imagine if you're, you know, our astronauts go up looking like they're getting ready to perform surgery. You know, there's very little logoing on. I want them to look like race car drivers with logos and brands all over them you know let the, let the commercial market buy down the cost of our spacefaring projects for government. imagine a Nike swoosh on the side of, of uh, a government rocket going to orbit. Uh, imagine if you will the excitement that would happen on the internet if an astronaut actually took a can of beer out of the space station and popped it open to see if it would repel him I really want to know I want to know what happens to beer when you open it up in space I want yeah. to see that. Yes, this is something yes. that is important to me as a taxpayer.
1: Well, I think I hopefully I think we're getting slowly there, right? You had the Estee law there, cosmetics on the ISS, and Tom Cruise supposedly will be up there soon. <laughs> we'll see yeah. what happens. I am um, excited for it. Me too. Me too. Um, so, a couple of sort of finishing questions on that. So, it, again, from today's point of view, if we have a renaissance of space-based solar power, and 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 people want to, uh, ho- hopefully, people want to get involved. Maybe some people who are listening as well. Um, so, so you mentioned when we were talking about the, the experiments on the X-37B, the, 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 the space plane, the U.S. Air Force space plane, which has generally got a very secretive um, endeavor. But you mentioned there were, re- there were results. I mean, how accessible are sort of like more up-to-date results? Is it still the same as your commanding officer back in the day said, like, everything's open sourced? Or has, it, has that part changed?
0: Uh, you know, I don't. I, I mean, the obvious answer to that one is I don't know. I'm not directly involved with that. I'm, mm. uh, I'm merely a humble professor sitting at a university at this point, uh, Paul Jaffe is the brilliant mind at the Navy Research Laboratory just right outside Washington, D.C., who has been the, the, the leader of that type of experimentation. Paul Jaffe is just a, a brilliant guy. He gave the presentation that won that one of our transformational competitions that the Department of Defense has just a few years ago regarding space-based solar power. And I do believe that he actually was the one that talked uh, the Department of Defense and through the Navy into doing a little investment and seeing what is up with this space-based solar power. Paul also is imbued with our same enthusiasm that we want to make sure that this is done out in the open with the rest of the world, because creating sources of safe clean, it doesn't really matter who creates it in our mind. In our mind, we want the commercial sector to have it. We want it uh, done broadly uh, in international partnerships, we want people to know and to be able to independently verify that this is not a weapon, that this is something that we're really trying to do to, to help the energy situation. And uh, uh, it, it, General Armour was just such a, had such a brilliant moment when he made that decision to let me proceed on the internet, and he took the risk on that, he mm-hmm. took the risk on that. And that type of leadership needs to be appreciated mm-hmm. because uh, that's rare in this world. Yeah. And uh, I appreciate what he has done. Yeah. I As far as like getting access to this, I need and
1: how other people can get involved. in Exactly. That was my next question. If people are excited, how what's the best way? I mean, is there like an equivalent of the, the Google groups you had like back in the day or someone yeah organization? or Well,
0: right now, I'm not running those those groups. I, I see people, I get notices that that somebody has entered something on the uh, WordPress site that I had for it years ago, and I haven't been checking them, quite frankly. Um, I had to arbitrate those things to make sure people weren't being inappropriate, and mm. that took a considerable amount of time, so I just haven't, I haven't been doing that. Sure. Um, the best thing that a, that a s- person can do is to join a space-related uh, foundation, institute, society. For example, here in the United States, uh, we have the National Space Society, mm. and, and they have space-based solar power as one of their continuing goals and objectives that they promote actively. And they actually meet with members of Congress uh, at least once a year to promote their space agenda, and part of that has been space-based solar power. Another organization is the Space Frontier Foundation, which is dedicated to the new space commercial development of space. Um, We have the the Planetary Society Mm -hmm, as well. We have the Space Studies Institute out of Princeton, which is kind of like one of the, I would say it's kind of like a successor to Jerry O'Neill's um, uh, L5 Society, uh, although the L5 Society properly rolled in under uh, under uh, the National Space Society. Over in Europe, there's the British Interplanetary Society, where I've given talks several times. Um, the British Interplanetary Society is, is I find it, a very exciting group. They were instrumental, of course, in promoting and advancing the idea of the British Space Agency, which now has stood up. And um, i I really like working with those people. They're nice. And I'm sure in each country there are space-minded people that would like to get involved in this and promote this. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would also like to give an additional shout-out to the National Space Society because they have a particular site for anybody that's really interested in space-based solar power called the Space Solar Power Library. You can Google it online the Space Solar Power Library hosted by the National Space Society. Uh, It hosts all of the great studies that have been done. Uh, It does not, however, host all of the amazing student research that has been generated in the last 15 years on this topic. Every year, students out there get so excited by this idea, and I am sure that there are people out there that are chomping at the bit to be interns for companies that would like to explore or examine or companies that would like to sponsor their research Mm -hmm. to to come to a better realization about what the facts are about the challenges. Um, If the business case was made and it was obvious, we would already be doing space-based solar power. So I'm going to assume that many of the challenges do remain, but I also think that there is going to be a gold rush of safe, clean energy provided by space-based solar power in the not too distant future. And I think those companies that are able to work convincingly with their legislative bodies to get the government stimulus and the public-private partnerships going, that they will become mm. those energy barons of the next century.
1: Yeah, and, and really stature of barons, like, uh, rail, like uh, railroad barons. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a very, very, energy is one of the biggest businesses on Earth, right? Right. So, Kiyoti, let me, um let me finish up a couple of questions, which I'm curious about. So, back before you, um, I guess, w- when you got involved with space-based solar power, you were mentioning, I forgot what you exact in some role at the military where you were looking at sort of innovative technologies in general. Yeah. So, we've been... Spending most of the hour now talking about space-based solar power, but is there anything else we should be thinking about that you find very exciting
0: on the horizon? Oh, yeah, you know, the, the, there's so many things that I find just so incredibly exciting about space and things that are getting ready to to, to happen. Uh, propulsion is mm. absolutely a, a field that we need to spend much more time on, and I'm I'm interested in non-chemical propulsion, things like ion drives. Uh, uh, Roger Shire's concept of the electromagnetic drive, the EM drive, mm-hmm. which which physicists will tell you it won't work, but an engineer will set it up on a test stand and go, look, it's working. <laughs> and uh, we don't know how to explain some of these things. And I suspect we have developed some systems that kind of demonstrate that there's a little bit of slop in our concept of physics. I, I, I know that our mathematics that we've invented as a human construct to help us understand the universe remains a human construct. And I'm not entirely sure that those laws of physics are as rigid as we assume. I I think just like, you know, Johannes Kepler assumed the earth was a perfect, all heavenly bodies were perfect spheres that were evenly weighted. Mm -hmm. And we find out that, no, the earth's obloid, we've got a liquid core, the weight of the earth shifts all the time. Um, So I I think when we take a look at at, uh, the types of technologies that are bursting On-orbit propulsion, electronic propulsion is something I find really exciting because right now our satellites unmanned or uninhabited rather or inhabited, they're trapped in orbital mechanics. They kind of only go where orbital mechanics and they maneuver in a way that only orbital mechanics will allow due to conservation of energy. If we find propellant sources that allow us to break out of the trap of orbital mechanics, we can go where we want to go when we want to go there and not have to wait for the big loop around the Earth or or having to go out to the moon to change our orbit to be re-injected into the Earth's orbit here. Those are types of things that are really exciting. Other things, um, oh, reusable rockets, Mm. isn't it just great? You know, you watch Elon Musk land a formation of rockets and you see his young operators in his launch control center. And you see them, you know, I think back to Apollo. When the average age of the person in the Apollo program was 26 years old. Mm. You know, and, and Gene Kranz was in his 30s when right. he was the big mission director, correct? You know, and those young, but they were all in white shirts with black, thin black neckties. Yeah, yeah. And they all looked very sterile and very government. You look at Elon's and it's like a rainbow of just you know, large, small, small, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, every type of description of person you can imagine is there in Elon's control station. It's just exciting to see them get so excited when they stick a landing, as we say. And, uh, yeah, that's really exciting. I'm waiting for Jeff Bezos. Uh, I'm waiting for what comes out of Blue Origin. They have been very quiet and slowly growing. I mean, they they, they kind of take the tor- the tortoise approach yeah. and they, they test. And I'm anxious to see uh, where their program goes. Um that, that's a guy, Bezos, that's a guy who's got a lot of things on his
1: plate. Um, I'm, I'm curious as well, because, I mean, you, you mentioned Princeton and O'Neill, and obviously Bezos is a Princeton graduate and a huge O'Neill fan. So yeah. uh, ideal, like, future, we may see some O'Neill-type stations Yeah, <laughs> at some point in time in the future. But One no, of the I'm, things uh, that yeah. strikes me is behind
0: my shoulder here, you see a couple of figures. You'll see uh, Werner von Braun's picture hanging small oh. above me, and I've got also uh, uh, Bernard Schriever. Bernard Schriever, of course, was the general who was in charge of our rocket and satellite program many, many years ago. Werner von Braun and his team of people, and, and before him, Tsiolkowski uh, in, in Russia, these these people had the vision that was almost complete, and we still haven't lived up to it yet. The vision has always been there, and uh, a book that was written here at uh, Air University by one of my predecessor professors, a guy named Donald Cox, along with Michael Stoiko. They both wrote a book together called Space Power, What It Means to You. And it was written uh, just a couple of months after Sputnik, when they published it. And it remains today the best elaboration, collective elaboration, of all the little bits and pieces of things that... We need to get done in order for us to become that spacefaring society that Robert Heinlein wrote about so convincingly. Yep. The vision's there; we just need to get there. So, I recommend that book. I'm a professor; I have to recommend a book. <laughs> You're going to have to buy a used copy. "Space Power: What It Means to You" by Donald Cox and Michael Stoiko.
1: I look it up. And while we're on books, and we basically we mentioned science fiction a couple of times. That's how I always finish up these these episodes, um, because most people I speak to, unsurprisingly, are fans of science fiction. <laughs> So what's what's your favorite? And it could be books or movies or TV series or anything. You know, if it comes to books, Robert Heinlein is
0: my favorite because he took the approach that you write about a normal life and you just create yeah. one little thread that's different uh, uh, that you're, you're able to go to space. And you play that out. And I just find that just really attractive. With any particular um, Heinlein book you like most? Gosh, you know, it's hard for me not to say A Stranger in a Strange Land or The Moon yeah. is a Harsh Mistress. Oh, a I love the story of Oscar, the spacesuit that the boy finds and, he, and wins in a box top competition. And he eventually goes to the moon, eventually out to Pluto with his spacesuit. That's really just, it's great. When it comes to t- to uh, uh, science fiction shows, I'm always going to remain a Star Trek fan. Uh, right. I, I, we get to watch uh, all series of Star Trek every night here uh, in Alabama. They start with Star Trek Classic, the original series, and they go through the next generation and, and right. Steve Spade and mine. Um, uh, I uh, I w- My interest in that is not necessarily the spacefaring, but it is the little bits and pieces of technology that they suggest in order to make lives better. Like a replicator, yeah, like a replicator. <laughs> you know, like the transporter. You know, somebody asked yeah. me in another interview a, a week ago if I had any uh, superpower, what would it be? And most people say they'd like to, you know, be able to fly. I, I don't really want to fly because then I'd feel kind of obligated to get involved in crime fighting, and I don't really think I'm the law enforcement type. I think I think probably I'd like the the, the transporter from Star Trek, be yeah. able to beam from one place to another.
1: Yeah, Star Trek certainly has a number of technologies we, we, we all would like to have. And, of course, warp, warp drive, while you mentioned propulsion before.
0: Yeah, you know, as a tangential technology, one of the things that uh, I've heard um, Ray Kurzweil speak about, Ray Kurzweil, of course, is a brilliant futurist. He wrote the yeah. book Singularity is Near, The Age yeah. of the Spiritual Machine. And he talks about um, a time where we will be able to download our consciousness straight online, that we'll be able to download our mental yeah, path, yeah, 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 yeah. things that animate us.
1: I went to some crazy conference in 2013. He was it was sponsored by a Russian billionaire, but that was basically all about let's let's by 2045 let's make it a reality that we can upload to a non biological substrate. Yeah, <laughs> it was basically two days on that. Yeah. But, I mean, you need, it's like you were talking about vision. I mean, it may sound crazy, but you need people like tossing around these ideas because you know every once in a while you get a spinoff and and and, and something, something. Well, like.
0: he's been the chief engineer at Google now for for quite a few years, since I believe 2012 or 2013. Uh, He's in a place where he's got the wherewithal to actually make a lot of his dreams come true. Um, I find that just absolutely interesting, the idea that you can download yourself online and become an avatar. And I wonder whether or not your conscious would be like Tron stuck in that video game, if you remember the old movie Tron. Yes, of Uh, course. Yeah, the other thing is that uh, you could bring up your relatives on the holidays as avatars you know, that, that have passed on and,
1: and, or deceased. And I think that's just really interesting. Uh, there's a lot of science fiction around that now. I mean, there's um, I know you're watching um, or read um, Altered Carbon. That's obviously where you... I recommend that. That's basically, okay. um, you're, you're backed up in a basically a disc or a drive or something that sits in the back of your head and you basically can't die. You just switch bodies. Wow. And then also the other one that's exploring that, do you, do you know John Scalzi? That's another science fiction author. Uh, he writes some brilliant books and there's one that's called Old Man's War and is basically... Um, they recruit older people and basically put them, download them, put them into new bodies to use them as soldiers. Yeah, it has been explored a few times, but it's very interesting, isn't it? Understanding. No okay, Coyote. Well, thank you so much for for coming on. You know, maybe we'll do this again in I don't know, a year or two, just to see whether the Renaissance of space-based solar power has actually happened. Because you know, it's as people sometimes say, as a cliche, it doesn't happen until it suddenly happens, and then suddenly things can go very. We're not talking about uh, Starship potentially having an orbital attempt in the summer. And I think that will suddenly make a lot of people wake up to, yeah. to what it actually means that you have a transport capacity of 100 tons to lower of orbit. And that may, of course, be a key enabler of, of things like that.
0: Can you imagine that? Wow. I'm so excited. Fingers yeah. mean,
1: crossed.
0: It's going to be great. <laughs> I get a better, I watch my diet very carefully and I exercise regularly because I want to see all this great stuff
1: happen I, I'm with you, I'm with you Cody, thanks a lot, it's been an absolute pleasure hope Thank you, take it. care Well that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast If you like this podcast please consider giving it a 5 star rating on your favorite podcast platform such as iTunes You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast if the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com the link is in the episode description lastly if you have any feedback including ideas for guests and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.